Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Class, um, so that the teachers can just pour Jesus into you. And so um, the kids are going to go head up that way. Um, but one of the things that we do every once in a while is we want to draw our attention to uh, specific things within the mission of God um, that we can not only be informed by, um, but also instru- instructed on how we can play a part um, in the mission that God is doing. And so um, this is, if you're not aware, um, Orphan Awareness Month. Um, and so we're going to invite Tim and Alyssa, if you would, come on uh, come down front. Um, you're the next contestant on the prices, right? Um, but if you would, just share with our church um, what it means for Orphan Awareness Month. Good morning. Um, So we wanted to share why Orphan Sunday exists, and we're going to be highlighting the reality of the problem, our responsibility, and our response to it. Uh, Globally, UNICEF estimates that there are about 140 million orphans in the world. This includes children who have lost both parents, children who have lost one parent, and children whose parents are living but could not take care of their medical needs or provide for them. And then as we zoom in to the USA, um, our country doesn't have institutionalized care for children. Orphans tend to look more like children in foster care. The DCS estimates that there are around 450,000 children in foster care at any given time. So as we think about these statistics, I was thinking, so 140 million, that's a big number. But what if it was double? What if it was 280? Like, what does that really mean to us? Um, that number's just so hard to, to comprehend. So, um, sorry, I'm nervous. So what really drives it home for me is that there are 450,000 children in foster care and there are 350,000 evangelical churches. That means that if 1.3 family in every church were to participate in taking care of foster kids, there, there would, it would eliminate the need in the U.S. Um, in Indiana alone, the DCS estimates that there are close to 10,000 children in foster care. This number is increasing as there is an extreme shortage of foster family. Um, so what are we to do with all that information? Why should we care? You might be thinking, um, it doesn't really affect my life. I don't see it. Um, so why should we care about it? Um, and the answer is, one, because it's a picture of the gospel. We have received adoption as sons. As Romans 8.15 says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Um, and God also has a heart that loves and works for the orphan and fatherless. Um, they are a group of people who are mentioned nearly 60 times in scripture. Psalm 68.5 says, A father to the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He is working for the cause of the fatherless, and as ones who are made to mirror his image, we too should have a heart for and work for the fatherless. Um, so ways that we can love and work for the orphan is by adopting or fostering. Um, or supporting those who are in the process of adopting or fostering. Um, But also, orphan preservation is really important and is a key that is often overlooked. And so, um, just different organizations that care to preserve families. Um, We know of several great ones in Indianapolis and across the world. So if you'd like more information, you can talk to us and we can tell you more about them. Before we close, I know that finances are usually a, a really big hiccup for this, and just 
we were really impacted by people's testimony, so a little piece I wanted to share. When we were pursuing it, we were paycheck to paycheck, had some debt, which like it'd be really great to have like 50 grand in the bank and be able to take <laughs> some kids. But um, God is the one who takes care of orphans through people who are willing to serve him in that way. So uh, the funds shouldn't be what holds you back. I want to close in this. Uh, it's a quote that we found by Brittany Lind. She sums it up well when she says, as Christians, we've been adopted into an eternal family through the blood of Jesus. In light of his grace, may we care for the lives of the born and consider opening our earthly homes for a week, a month, or all of our days on earth to the countless number of children who are in need. And as we do, may we point them, their birth parents, social workers, and the watching world to Jesus, the one who welcomes us into his forever home. Thank you, guys. Um, I also know that the Moran family, this isn't just something that they study and are passionate about and are trying to direct other people to be passionate about, but it's something that they embody. It's something that they have um, personally taken on themselves um, in their own adoptive process um, of adopting care as one of their own children. Um, in addition to that, the Moran family um, feels called by God to move to Costa Rica in the springtime um, to literally take on a home that brings in foster children and orphans um, that they can basically bring in. A, they already have five kids. They're going to bring in more kids into this home in order to care and love them and be Jesus to them. And so one of the things that we want to do as a church is we've opened up a fund on our um, through our giving online platform in order for you at any time that you feel led or feel called to um, can give just radically, generously, um, sacrificially even, give towards them to be able to help them get to Costa Rica and begin caring for and loving on these orphans. And so again, I want to pray for you guys um, before I jump into this. Thank you, Father, so much for this family and just them taking the time today to uh, inform us and instruct us on this great need and also invite us um, to play our part in the mission that you are doing to care for these orphans and these foster children. Um, Father, if, if it's not been on our radar, uh, may it now be on our radar. May it be something that you are drawing our attention to um, and give us uh, these deep longings, desire, and affections to be able to care for those who are marginalized, to be able to love those um, who don't have people loving them right now. And so, Lord, um, would you impress that on our hearts? We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to see you guys. Um, I feel like I've been like dead for about a week and a half now, and so it's, uh, it's good to be back. I have a voice again, so I'm allowed to get up here again. Um, last week, literally Sunday, I woke up and just couldn't get anything out, and so I'm glad that Josh uh, was able to stand in for me last week and uh, do a fantastic job, I was especially amidst a lot of uh, difficulty from um, tech and everything else that was going on. So it, it at least gave me a joy on that Sunday <laughs> of just knowing that Josh had to handle all the problems. <laughs> so um, that's always, uh, always good to hear. We're in a series right now um, in the book of Psalms, and so if you would, go ahead and open up to Psalms uh, 103. We're going to be looking at the 103rd Psalm today, and uh, I've personally enjoyed this one because I know um, as we look at the Psalm, this was the, the hymnal for the people of Israel. This was their songbook that they would go to, and what the Psalms have done, not only for them, but also for us, is it's given us a framework. It's given us 
uh, an opportunity to be able to navigate our emotions, our affections, our feelings, our thoughts, um, especially when they're inconsistent, especially when they're in um, kind of places where we don't know what to do with our thoughts. We don't know what to do with our emotions. When we're struggling, battling with sin, or when we're struggling, battling with trials, tribulations, when we're struggling, dealing with relational tension, when we have anxieties and stress and worries of life. Like the Psalms literally ground us and anchor us to the Word of God and the beauties of His truth that allow us to be able to rightly place our thoughts and our emotions and our affections and, and whatever it is that's working within our being, our soul. And so again, regardless of the circumstances of your life, the Psalms give us a place to learn and be instructed on how to pray and think about what it is that's going on in our lives. And so this is why I know there's um, countless people, Tim Keller, for example, every single year, twice a year, will do what he just calls praying through the Psalms to where literally he's like, if I don't know what to pray for, I'm just going to read the Psalms and it will pray for me what my body and my soul and my heart and my mind actually needed to pray. God is instructing me, growing in my understanding of myself so that I then better know how to approach him and dialogue with him and talk to him about the anxieties that are going on within me. And so this is what the Psalms have done for us. And, and we've walked through literally starting out in Psalm 1 was just grounding us and anchoring us to the word of God. It's bringing us to the word of God and saying like we should meditate on his word day and night. Like it should be the very thing that we anchor ourselves to because it's God revealing himself to us. It's him telling us who he is and what he's doing and what he's working within our lives. We then jumped around to Psalm 23 and we saw how um, Jesus being our Lord, our great shepherd, is walking with us, how he's leading us beside still waters, how he's nourishing us, how he's caring for us, and he's doing it all for the glory of his name. And so there's benefits that we are receiving in the fact that Jesus is for Jesus, the fact that God is for God, the fact that they are doing what they're doing in our lives in order to bring praise and adoration to their own name. And this is one of the best things for us to hear, because if it was all about us, then we would be the heroes of our story rather than Jesus being the hero of our story. And when it's less about us and more about him, it's the most freeing place for us to be. It's, the most, it's literally the best place for us to be. Because then when people cut you off in traffic, it doesn't matter. Because life isn't about you. When people mess up or when people do something against you or when your spouse messes up and doesn't do the dishes when you ask them to, like whatever it is, you're able to have some freedom in reacting out of vengeance Rather, you're able to extend grace because you're seeing that there's a God who's extending grace to us despite us. And we're seeing that working out in Jesus being our great shepherd, his pursuit of us despite us, his grace and mercy towards us. And then we got into really some kind of off of that high mountaintop. We then went into some valleys with Psalm 42 and Psalm 51. Psalm 42, literally, David saying, like, my tears have become my food. Like, why are you so downcast, oh, my soul? 
Like, why are you so just dreadful within me? I mean, have we not each been in those seasons? I mean, I feel like that's been like what I've just been reading the last week and a half is like, why are you so downcast, oh, my soul? Which really more was just me like stomach, get it together, quit throwing up, like get your voice back. Like it was just a dark season for us. And then at the same time, we moved into Psalm 51. And so where it's not only just discouragement of soul, but Psalm 51, David, literally, this is one of the first psalms that we actually get the context of the psalm in which he's writing. And it's right after he sinned with Bathsheba and then had Uriah killed. And then as part of the consequence, loses his first child. We see this David coming to the Lord and just bearing his soul. Lord, forgive me. Do not cast your spirit away from me. He is just in a season of just confession coming to the Lord. And the Lord, we see, passes over his sin because he knows there will be a day when Jesus comes and vindicates sin, past, present, and future for all who are under the family of God. And so God rightly deals with his sin by placing it on Jesus Christ. And David's able to freely come and confess his sin. A lot of times we don't have a theology of confession. We don't have an understanding of when I mess up, how do I approach God with that sin? And if you don't know how to approach God when you sin and when you mess up, Psalm 51 is a great place to go. If you don't know how to come to Him, just go to Psalm 51 and read it with the context of your sin in mind and let it speak truths over your soul in order for you to freely be able to come to Him knowing that He's going to take care of it for you. And then from there, out of Psalm 51, kind of again a valley place, we then last week went into Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise. Bless the Lord, like come after Him in praise and adoration. And I love to kind of use the language of like we were attending to the Lord in that moment. Just like you attend lunch, just like you attend uh, parties, like you go in order to partake of something that's going to bring satisfaction to your soul. That's what we mean when we say we are attending to the Lord. We are attending a gathering. We are attending a service. We are coming into this place in order for us to look at the menu of God and order off of that menu what we want to be satisfied with, what we want to be filled up with, and what we ultimately want is joy. And the way that God invites us into receiving that joy is by Him commanding us to come and sing praises to Him, to come and pray to Him, to come and open up the Word of God so that we would be receiving all that he is providing to us, just like I like to go and order steak and receive it and enjoy it in that moment. I'm attending to it as I am being satisfied. We're doing the exact same thing here today, where we're attending to the Lord. And Psalm 103, as we look at it today, is following in that same vein. So if we kind of come back up to the mountaintop, we're still on the mountaintop in this moment as we're looking at Psalm 103 as David now, and this actually provides a little bit more context. There's a lot of scholars who believe that Psalm 103 was written when David received assurance from the Lord out of Psalm 51, knowing that God has finally dealt with his sin. So this is him bursting forth with just praise and adoration. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And here's another thing I want to tell you before we jump into this. It's a long introduction, but it'll go quick here. Um, 
One of the things with David that we're seeing here is that this is what we call an indicative text rather than an imperative. And what I mean by that is a lot of times, especially if you're taking notes, you're here today to be like, what do I need for the week? What do I need to do? How do I increase my relationship with the Lord? What do I need to do to serve in a better way? How can I fill in the blank? And today's sermon is not one of those sermons, which means I'm not going to provide you any application of what you need to do in response to this, which would be an imperative. Usually an imperative, because God has done this, you need to go do this. Today we're focusing just on the because God has done this. It's an indicative. I want you to be filled up with what God has done, is doing, and is continuing to do every single day so that you will be filled up throughout the week in order for the imperatives to flow out of the liberty that you have of knowing what God has done. So it is not us coming into this room to what can I do for God in order for him to love me, but rather it's this is what God has done for you and his love for you and his steadfast mercy for you, his, his grace towards you that then gives you the fuel to do the imperatives later. So Psalm 103. We're going to start off, and I'm going to literally just kind of read through and pull off and read through and pull off and just encourage you throughout this psalm. So if you want to take notes, take notes. But if not, just sit and just receive. Just receive today. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Why is David telling his soul to bless the Lord? Because we remember out of Psalm 42 and Psalm 51 how his soul was downcast. Why are you so downcast, my soul? Why does it hurt within me? My tears have literally become my food. This is a moment where because of what he is seeing as he's about to lay out for us in a long list, he is seeing what the Lord is doing when his soul is downcast, when he feels far from God. I mean, David, in some ways, as he's writing out the Psalms, can sound very schizophrenic. On one page, where are you, Lord? And on the next page, everywhere I go, there you are, Lord. And this is one of those moments where he's seeing the Lord near and he's remembering all that God is doing for him. And therefore, his soul is crying out, bless the Lord. Praise Him. Why? Because, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. And so I actually titled this just God with Benefits. <laughs> um, it's all the benefits that come from a relationship with Him. Verse 3, Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, I know many of us are young and don't believe we need our youth to be renewed, um, but you will, give it time. Um, but look at these benefits. David is getting into several offices here that God upholds. The first one is he talks about this idea of forgiving um, all of our iniquity is referring to the role of a high priest. He's looking at God as this high priest who is able to forgive all our iniquities. All human blessedness or benefit, either permanent or important, must be based in forgiveness of sins. 
If it doesn't start with forgiveness of sins, then we're actually not receiving any benefits from the Lord. Like if he just kind of gave you a car but never forgave your sins, the car doesn't matter because it's going to break down. You're going to need another one in a few years. If he gave you a job but didn't forgive your sins, it doesn't matter the benefit. It all has to start with this iniquity that is deep within us, that is us, that God deals with as a high priest. And what I mean as a high priest is when we talk about the Old Testament, there were high priests that, were, that God had put in place in order to fill a position where people would come to the high priest with their sins, confess their sins, the, sin would then go, or the priest would then go and find an animal, come and sacrifice it so that blood would be shed for their forgiveness of their sins, and then he would speak that over them. And then they would go away and they would do this literally every year coming back and forth, back and forth. We need to go get our sins forgiven, so we need to go to the high priest. But finally, in Jesus Christ, we have a high priest that we don't have to go to once a year in order to, to bring all of our sins and then have him go and find a perfect or spotless animal or lamb or sheep or whatever it is and bring it back in order to have it sacrificed. I mean, like what? We would need a weird facility if that were the case that we were doing like every single year. But we're not doing that because Jesus as our high priest has offered up himself as that perfect sacrifice. And because of that, freely, every single day, past, present, future, our sins have been dealt with, are being taken care of, and we can confidently come to him knowing that he is forgiving them and has forgiven them and will always forgive them because of his sacrifice on the cross. As Hebrews 7.27 says, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. The second thing we see here is that he heals all your diseases, that he is a good physician. God never gives pardon or forgiveness of sins without also granting with it renewal of the soul, renewal by which the corruptions of our hearts are cured. Like we need a physician who is literally doing open heart surgery on our souls where he is removing the iniquity and then renewing us, giving us a heart that has, that's literally beating with his blood, with his affections, with his desires, with his identity. This is what he is doing for us as a good physician. Again, because many scholars believe this psalm was written right after David received from the Lord the assurance of his forgiveness, is that he's literally feeling right now the removal of this guilt and this shame that is a disease within him. I mean, just think about it, guys. When you've wronged somebody or when you've done something wrong, when you're feeling this weight of this, again, this, this guilt and this shame of sin in your life, does it not feel like a disease that is just spreading through? I mean, you can't think rightly. You can't feel rightly. Everything you do is just weighing on you. And as the good physician who not only is forgiving all of our iniquity, but is healing our souls from that iniquity so that we are feeling and literally an expression of renewal and restoration. This is happening to us every single day. Verse 4, who redeems you from the pit. He is, our God, he is our great redeemer. He redeems your life from the pit. 
This is a prophetic word from David in regards to salvation as a whole and the Lord redeeming us from the pit of death and destruction. We also see this in Jeremiah 31, 11, for the Lord has ransomed Jacob, talking about Israel, and has redeemed them from the hands that were too strong for them to hold. Like, sin is too strong for us to figure out. It's too strong for us to work our way out of. So literally, we have brought ourselves into our own pit of destruction because of our own sin. And as a redeemer, he has provided the ransom necessary. He's paid Jesus in order to get us out of our own pit and destruction. He has redeemed us. He has brought us out. He then crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. As the king of glory, he is the one who is bestowing to us this crown of honor. Whenever a crown was given to someone in Scripture, it was a sign of favor. I love what the theologian Matthew Henry says regarding this. He says, What greater dignity is a poor soul capable of than to be advanced into the love and favor of God? Like when we think of the story of the prodigal son, at what point did the prodigal son finally kind of come to his senses? It was when he was the most poor in spirit. When he was literally living out of pig slop. Like that's what he's eating. He's, he's literally living the life of a pig. And he comes to his senses and he thinks, my father, who has incredible wealth, who has incredible servants, who has this incredible kingdom, literally his servants are living better than I am. So if, if I could just go back home and just live as one of his hired servants, it would be better than where I'm at now. He's in this, finally, in this state of humility and humbled spirit in which he's able to go back home. And what does the father do? Does he hire him back on as a servant? No. The father runs to him and clothes him. Literally, it's an allegory of clothing him in righteousness just as God does us as he clothes us in Christ. He gives to him everything that shows that the father has favor over him rather than exercising vengeance. Like the father, literally, one of the penalties of, of squandering the inheritance, especially before you were supposed to be given the inheritance, could be death in that, time, in that time period. Like the father would be just in taking his son and killing him because of what he did. But instead, the father, in his loving kindness and mercy, has extended to his son favor and grace and has literally crowned him in order to bring him back into his family, to show him his love. And this is Romans 8 language where God's spirit is preaching to our spirit that we are children of God, that we have been adopted by our heavenly father and that he is clothing us in righteousness. And the crown symbolizes his bestowing upon us his steadfast love and mercy. That when he looks at us, he looks at us just like he looked at Jesus when Jesus was being baptized. And he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I, just, I want you to do a, a, a practice of meditation here for a second. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to think about this. It's easy for us to have God look at Jesus and say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But if in this room right now you are a believer you live under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've been adopted by the Father. The Father is saying to you right now, 
You are my son. You are my daughter. I am well pleased. I love you. I care for you. I'm crowning you. Second thing he says is he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He satisfies you. This is language in the Hebrew of literally like you're eating your fill. And I love, as Jesus says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We're finding satisfaction in him to the full. This is going back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Which means when he is my shepherd, when he is my king, when he is my Lord, there's nothing else that I'm lacking. There's nothing else that I want. I'm not in need. All I have is in him and all I need is in him. He is the bread of life. He is satisfying us. And then it kind of gets interesting because it compares us to eagles. Why the comparison to eagles? I would let Ransford come up here and talk about it, but I'll do my best. Um, it's not perfectly the same thing, but illustratively, annually, an eagle sheds his feathers and quills and gets a new set of them. He attains to a greater age than any other bird of the air. His vision's wonderful, seeing small objects at great distances. His flight is majestic and even in his old age does not seem to be attended by such signs of weakness and decay as are often discovered in other creatures. He's also the monarch of the air. When we think about kind of the imagery of an eagle, we similarly are throwing off our old selves in order to be renewed daily in our minds to worship God. We are the monarchs of creation. We possess a vision a discerning ability to see small, often hidden sins and inconsistencies in one another and speak wisdom into the distant lives of one another in hopes of offering friendly rebuke and restoration. And this is what the Lord is doing in us as He is peering into our lives. He is seeing our sins and He's offering rebuke and correction in order for us to be restored and renewed so that we would be renewed in our youth regardless of age, regardless of body breaking down, regardless of what that looks like. I mean, that's something I could say amen to this last week. Just constantly, every single day, being like, okay, can I just get like one day where I feel good physically? Like, that would be, that would be nice. And I'm only 32. Up until this point, David has been talking about his personal benefits and blessings. Now he turns it plural as he also looks to his people. Verse 6, he says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. It is God's ordinary work to serve his servants whenever he sees them injuriously treated. If you have a heartbeat for those who are oppressed, who are not receiving justice, who are being mistreated, it's because that is the very heartbeat of God. That's why I love the fact that today's Orphan Sunday and that we talked about that in the beginning. It's, it's literally us seeing God working out his mission to make disciples. And not only to make disciples, but also to 
specifically have a special interest for those who are being marginalized, oppressed, suppressed in any type of society or culture. We literally become agents of justice and mercy. And this is daily work that the Lord is doing. Verse 7, He made known His ways to Moses and His acts to the people of Israel. This is us just recounting and looking back at everything that He did with Moses and the Exodus. His ways are referring to all of the statutes, ordinances, decisions, and laws contained in the first five books of the Pentateuch. It's literally looking at God's providence and instructing the people on what He was going to do in order to redeem them and deliver them. And then His acts to the people of Israel are just looking at all of the wonders brought about in effecting the deliverance of Israel from Egypt and establishing His people in the Promised Land. David's just looking back over his heritage that literally brought him to where he's at. And just looking at all the... I mean, a lot of times we always say, like, if, if, if you're struggling today, look at what God did for you yesterday. Like, if there's moments where today you're like, I don't know how God is working, be reminded of how he's worked in your past. That's all David is doing here. He's saying, I'm looking back over my heritage, over my family, and I'm seeing the faithfulness of God as a faithful father. And then verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now he's starting to kind of recall this assurance of his salvation, assurance of his relationship with the Lord, assurance that God has rightly dealt with his sins, and then he jumps into how God has dealt with them. Verse 9, he will not always chide, or in another translation, rebuke or correct, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He's literally saying, if he did, he would have killed me at the moment of my sin with Bathsheba. But he did not deal with me then. He dealt with me at Jesus on the cross. And it vindicated his sins. It didn't just let him go scotch-free. But through the work of Jesus Christ, allowed him to be forgiven and pardoned of his sin. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Have you been able to measure how far the heavens are above the earth? I haven't. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions. Not only does he remove our transgressions, he removes our transgressions from us. That's important. It's important for us to to have this theology and this understanding that He's not just forgiving His sins or, or forgiving our sins, but He's removing our sins. This is why, and a lot of times, if you hear the the um, illustration and understanding of the fact that there's a sacrificial lamb, but there is also a scapegoat in the theology of His atonement. And what I mean by that is Jesus Christ becoming the sacrificial lamb, Isaiah 53 being fulfilled, is all of our sins 
being placed on Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb, him being put to death because of those sins that were literally absorbing the wrath of God do us, him taking those sins and the wrath of God being satisfied in that moment. Jesus paid it in full. So for us, past, present, future sins paid in full. And then there's a reason why Jesus goes in three days is in a grave. Because in Old Testament ritual and in Old Testament theology, there is also a scapegoat. So one of the things the high priest would do is they would bring a sacrificial goat, a sacrificial lamb. They would kill it for the bloodshed. But then the priest would also take the sins of the people, not only sacrifice it here, but place it on the head of the scapegoat to where the scapegoat would then be literally kicked and then run off into the wilderness and they would never see that goat again. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us as he went into the grave for three days was he was also not only the sacrificial lamb, but the scapegoat where he would take our sins to death so that God would remember them no more. And that for us, he is taking them from us so that we too can preach to ourselves that not only does God remember them no more, but we should remember them no more. That when we come and confess our sins, we should have the liberation and freedom to know that God is seeing us as pleased. Saints, holy, righteous. We need that. We need that. Remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows that we're dust. He made us. And he knows our frame. He knows that there's nothing that we can do to figure this out, to earn our way, to work it towards him. There's nothing that we can do to come to the table of God and negotiate forgiveness. He takes it himself and he does the work himself. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. He's literally just talking about the fact that we're like vapor. We're, we're, we're here and we're gone. And he's just trying to show us that even though we might seem so insignificant, that the Lord is presently engaged in every single one of our lives as if we were the only person that existed. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. Then he goes on down to verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. This kind of goes, again, back to my understanding of the imperatives and, and indicatives. Because we could look at this and be like, well, okay, it's for those who keep his covenant. It's for those who remember to do his commandments. We will only keep his covenant, and we will only remember to do his commandments when we first understand what he has done for us. When we first understand his pursuit of us, does it only then build a pursuit of us back towards him. When we remember that God first loved us is when we are then able to then love others and love him. 
This is not an equation of you do this, God will do this. But rather it's because God did this, you get to keep this and you get to receive this and you get to work this out in your life. Therefore, again, David just expresses his gratitude in verse 20. Bless the Lord. And he's talking to the angels here. Oh, you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So the only application you have today from this passage, this message, is to just remember. It's just to remember these benefits. One of the saddest proofs of our fallen condition is our propensity to forget God's benefits. Like that's just one of the saddest things we can do as Christians, as believers, is forget what God has done. To forget what He is doing. I love, again, Matthew Henry says in regards to us forgetting the benefits of God, this is going to sound like a rebuke, and that's okay. Henry says, our lips are closed because our hearts are dead in spiritual insensibility. Ingratitude is satanic. I do not want us to be lacking gratitude. But the only way that we can be filled with gratitude is, as, G, as, as David is sharing with us here, is to remember what God has done. To meditate on what God has done. To be reminded of what God has done. This is why it's important for us to just tell each other what God has done. To share with one another what He's done. If you've never shared your salvation story with someone else who's in this room right now, I encourage you to do that. Take someone to lunch. Take them out to dinner this week and just say, hey, I, I, I don't know you, and I would love to just share with you how God has redeemed me. How He has shared His grace and His mercy with me. Count the blessings. I love the lyrics of the old hymn, Count Thy Blessings. Gigi, you asked me earlier this morning if we could sing hymns more. Um, I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to read it, though. You do not want me to sing it. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly, and you will, get, you will keep singing as the days go by. When you look at others with their lands and gold, think that Christ has promised you His wealth untold. Count your many blessings, money cannot buy. Your reward in heaven, nor your home on high. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. I said at the beginning that this message is not going to be one where there is a call to action, so I'm not going to give you one. 
There's no list for you to check off, but rather you are just to sit back, rest, and receive the encouragement of these blessings that God is bestowing to us. And one of the greatest blessings of the gospel is that Jesus gives you rest that no one else will. Everyone else in your life right now is demanding from you more. Your job's demanding more production. Your relationships are demanding more pursuit. Your church is demanding more service. Your everything is demanding more of you. Jesus is the only person in your life who demands of you to rest. To find solitude, to find silence, and to be renewed and restored by only what he is accomplishing for you. Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at